Welcome to a very special edition of Talking Space. I'm Gene McCulka. This year marks the 50th anniversary of the successful landing of Apollo 11 on July 20th, 1969. But a key point to that flight's success, unfortunately, has its roots in tragedy. January 27th, 1967 marks the first heart-wrenching day of the U.S. space effort. A little after the doleful event occurred at 6.31 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, NASA announced the shocking news with the following words. Astronauts Virgil I. Grissom, Edward White, and Roger Chaffee were killed tonight in a flash fire during test of the Apollo-Saturn 204 vehicle at Cape Kennedy Air Force Station. Gus was already a veteran of two missions. He piloted the second Mercury suborbital flight, and commanded the first Gemini flight with astronaut John Young. Edward White had flown once before with Jim McDivitt on Gemini 4 and became the second human being and the first American to perform an extravehicular activity, or spacewalk. And for Roger Chaffee, Apollo 1 represented it as his very first opportunity to be introduced to space exploration and was teamed up with two of the best. He was one of the U-2 aircraft pilots who had captured photographic evidence of nuclear missiles being deployed in in Cuba, being deployed by the Soviet Union in October of 1962. And we all expected death would eventually visit the space program. Even Gus Grissom himself said, quote, If we die, we want people to accept it. We are in a risky business, and... We hope that if anything happens to us, it would not delay the program. The conquest of space is worth the risk of life. Close quote. Now, I saw the usual photographs of the crew on various Facebook and Twitter pages today and thought, indeed, it's appropriate that we remember the crew of Apollo 1 as we prepare to celebrate Apollo 11, but... I also thought back to the lyric of an old Roger McGuinn song called If We Never Meet Again that goes, quote, Cause these memories get old and flat like photographs, close quote. To some of our listeners, Grissom, White, and Chaffee are nothing more than names in a history book. We know nothing of their personalities except from reports and written history. Since they are no longer with us, they can't tell their story on how difficult preparing for Apollo 1 really was. There's a grand exhibit at the Saturn V Pavilion at the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Center that provides a lot of insight into that, but I thought perhaps there was another way to remedy this, and as luck would have it, I discovered it in and amongst the NASA Audio Internet Archive. 
Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee, along with the chief astronaut, Deke Slayton, and the Apollo 1 backup crew of Walter Schirra, Walt Cunningham, and Don Isley, had participated in a pre-launch press conference. And as I discovered this gem and listened to it, I thought, well, it might be a good idea to go ahead and present this to you, our listeners, and give you a little insight into the crew that we lost and let them speak for themselves, to hear from them so we can glean a little into their personalities instead of, instead of just simply mourning their passing, celebrate their lives. So, without further ado, here is that pre-launch press conference from the NASA Audio Archive with the prime crew of Apollo 11, describing their training regimen and um, the shuffling of the backup crew assignments for the mission. Okay, for transcript purposes, uh, we'll go through the introductions. <coughs> Starting from your right, uh, One more Donald Slayton. Next to him, Mr. Walter Cunningham. The LM pilot, I guess, now on the backup crew, Mr. Don Isley, or Major, pardon? They haven't changed the designation on this crew, okay. Mr. Walt Cunningham is the pilot, Major Don Isley, the senior pilot, Captain Wally Shira, the command pilot of the backup crew. Lieutenant Commander Roger Chaffee, the pilot, Lieutenant Colonel Ed White, the senior pilot, and Lieutenant Colonel Virgil Grissom, the command pilot of the prime crew. Uh, Colonel Grissom will start off with a few words on their training. Well, we really haven't been doing uh, too much different than we have been for the past uh, six months, I guess, since the last time we saw at least part of you out in Los Angeles. We've been doing the major portion of our training at the uh, North American plant in Downey on the MEO-12 evaluator, which consists primarily of the uh, guidance and navigation system. Our trainer at the Cape, our AMS, which we is just now getting in real good shape for us to start using, and we'll start using it as our primary trainer uh, after the first of the year. As far as the spacecraft is concerned, it's been, uh, we thought we had it pretty well checked out when it left Los Angeles. And we ran, we've run into uh, some problems in the environmental control system, which have just been corrected. And uh, we'll start back with the, uh, the altitude chamber test, the first of the year at the Cape. I guess the biggest thing that's happened to us uh, since that time was the change of the backup crew. Uh, as you know, they've just been introduced with Wally and Don and Walt. Uh, this has caused us uh, some little problem in that they were somewhat behind us in training, so they've been scrambling pretty hard to get caught up. Also, uh, as you know, we had uh, individual assignments at that time, work assignments as far as the flight plan was concerned, mission rules, objectives, flight objectives, this sort of thing. Well, uh, obviously, Wally and his crew didn't have time to pick up those things. And fortunately, most of them were pretty well done anyway and, and well along the way. So we've actually picked up three other pilots to help us with this who aren't here today. Maybe they should have been. But we have uh, Ed Givens and Jack Swigert 
and Ron uh, Evans, who are helping us in this area and doing a lot of, I guess, really sort of dog work for us, but they are doing a, a great job for us. Uh, we have uh, about a three or four minute film, I understand, that I'll uh, try to narrate for you, and then we'll open it up for questions for you. We were looking for film for you today to show to you, and, and uh, actually it was pretty hard to come by. We haven't really uh, uh, done anything that's uh, photogenic, I guess, photographic. You can see uh, that this spacecraft really doesn't float any better than a Gemini spacecraft, so uh, some of us Air Force types may have a little problem still, I don't know. And uh, this is a standard helicopter pickup. Uh, Roger has already been pulled up, and this is Ed uh, going up second. Now this is uh, Wally and his crew uh, doing their water recovery. They didn't have quite a nice day as we did. You can tell, you can tell the spacecraft is uh, tossing around quite a bit more. <laughs> yeah, they're a little greener. <laughs> uh, this is a stack out of Downey where the uh, spacecraft service module and command module is checked out as a unit. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, those uh, blue, funny-looking coveralls that Ed and I have on are the constant wear garment that we expect to wear uh, during the flight uh, when we take our pressure suits off. Uh, this is the... Uh, <laughs> that's too short to even talk about it. This was a fit and functional test we had uh, out at uh, Downey before the sh spacecraft was shipped. We're checking over some of the gear that will be stowed on board and how it was stowed and this sort of thing. And this is just prior to going to the uh, altitude chamber test down at the Cape. Those are flight suits that we have on. And uh, this test will have to be done over again uh, starting the uh, first part of January. That's just the entrance to the altitude chamber itself, and there's a spacecraft in the chamber. Those suits will be wearing that? Yes, those were flight suits. Uh, this is a TV picture taken by a camera that's mounted in the chamber itself that can look in the hatch and monitor what's going on. It can look in when a door is off. This is a shot in through the door. That's our TV camera that will be on board. We'll be able to transmit uh, some pictures back live. And uh, this is the end of the test. It was about uh, 12, 14 hours in there. Okay, uh, I guess... Uh, we're ready for Open to you. Oh. <coughs> Bill Hines, down here in the front row. Gus, in the film that you just showed, uh, the suit looked considerably different from the Gemini 7 suit, and we were told yesterday that this was essentially a modification of Gemini 7. Can you explain what the extent of the modifications are and how it differs? Well, you, you're aware of the Gemini 7 suit, so... Yes, I think you perhaps have a misunderstanding uh, this isn't a modification of our Gemini 7 suit. If you recall, the Gemini 7 suit really had no helmet. It was all integral part. And we looked at both of the suits to see which one would be best suited for an interim block uh, 2 suit. And we decided because of the requirement to cover a wide span right and left on the cockpit that the fixed helmet with a fixed vision in the Gemini 7 suit, you'd look over here and you're looking in the side of this bag you had over your head on Gemini 7, we decided we had to use the uh, standard uh, Gemini suit. And so this is a G4C suit, which is basically the same uh, suit that we've used for EVA without the cover layer. 
but it does have the dual zippers in the back. And so it's really just a Gemini suit, and it has no re relationship at all with the 14-day uh, suit that we used on Gemini 7. Uh, I guess this should be addressed to Gus. Uh, I'm not clear on who is going to do the engine burns. Would that be your job, or would it be Ed White's job as, uh, as well, pilot? Uh, the engine burns, uh, it takes really three people to do it as a crew working. Uh, and we split, we have eight burns total, and so we split the uh, positions up. Uh, I uh, actually, I do the flying on three of the burns, and the navigating on two, and engineer on three. Uh, Ed is the same as I, and Roger, being the new boy, he only gets to burn two. <laughs> Yeah, but one of mine is a half a second long, so it didn't make Roger feel too bad. <laughs> Wally, isn't there some Navy traditional rule that if you're passed over twice for promotion, it's about the end of the line? Now, you have missed out. You've been passed over on two occasions, uh, once in Mercury and once now when you lost your space craft flight. Would you care to comment? when you hope to make another flight and can't make any comment. Well, of course, I'm still in line for a flight, and in the role of a backup, we are not automatically removed from the list. I suspect that question has been asked of Deke earlier, but I'll ask it as well if you want. <laughs> Gus, uh, I have two questions. One, when are you planning to fly? And number two, <laughs> Can we understand that you have the prerogative of turning off the television camera? And are you going to be bashful about putting your suit on on camera? <laughs> well, to answer your first one, uh, I, I intend to fly when it lifts off the pad, you know, as soon as I can. Uh, as far as the TV camera is concerned, uh, we certainly have control of it, and uh, we'll use it as we see fit. Thank you very much. You, you, might, you might comment on the uh, TV, though, that we do have a certain uh, coverages that have been laid out on a plan to be provided, and uh, I think uh, if we get good reception down that there'll be periods of plan coverage by the TV, uh, which will, I hope, satisfy the, the public. I don't know how much suit donning and doffing will be involved in it. Shorty, we, we only plan to take the suits off once and put them on once, so I... We don't right now visualize a special exercise to put it on and off and all this sort of thing. We were told earlier, the reason I asked the question, we were told earlier by your public <laughs> affairs representatives that we would see suit donning and suit doffing. And uh, I just wondered whether you were going to be bashful on camera. And I'm very bashful on camera. <laughs> <laughs> would you believe helmets and gloves? <laughs> 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 could, could, could we talk a little bit more about how you propose to use that television camera? Who, for instance, will handle it? Will it be stowed or mounted during the launch or powered phase of the flight? Uh, what do you propose to uh, really use it for? Well, we, we call a TV camera Chaffee's Folly, so I'll let him talk to you about it. <laughs> See, I'm looking out for you guys all the time. Um, we have three mounts in the spacecraft, one that can mount the camera and look at the main display panel, one that um, mounts 
up and up above us when we're laying in the couches, so it's looking at us. And then the other one down in the lower equipment bay that scans the work area, the environmental control station, uh, where we change our lithium hydroxide canisters. And our program coverage that we will try to meet, if it's at all possible, will include some of the onboard tasks like changing a lithium hydroxide canister, manually controlling some of the uh, ECU valves. Uh, we hope to have some TV coverage during one of the burns, and then the possibly the separation maneuver. You can handhold it or you can mount it in any one of the three stations, and I'm sure when it's handheld, we'll all be taking our turns handholding it. Do us a favor and let us know who is manipulating the camera at times when you were feeding those pictures to us so we have some idea who's who among <laughs> who's the players. The producer? <laughs> who's the producer, huh? That's surprising, Roy. I don't recall ever having a cameraman credited. It's always you or your contemporaries. <laughs> we haven't had, we haven't, we haven't had such go. distinguished cameramen before, Roger. <laughs> I, I think more, Roger, will the camera be mounted or stowed during the powered phase of flight? <laughs> It will be stowed during the powered phase of flight. That contradicts what we were told this morning, and that's, that's why I wanted to clarify the point. Jeff Thompson. Well, we understand that the uh, oxygen sump tank can uh, hold pressure in case of rapid decompression uh, for a number of minutes. Uh, are you going to be doing a speed test uh, in donning the suit that last time, and who's the champ at the moment on that? No, we don't uh, plan to do any speed tests to put the suits on. Uh, we have practiced uh, putting them on in the simulator, and we found it works best if the three of you work together and work at certain times in certain areas and help each other. What is the duration of time that you have with that sump tank? Oh, in the order of five to seven minutes. That, well, you mean the time in, in the sump tank? Yes. Well, it takes us about five to seven minutes to get our suits completely on. Uh, the duration uh, depends on the size of the hole, and I think it's a five-minute. Uh, yeah, five minutes with a half-inch hole. That's what it's guaranteed. Arthur Hill. Uh, I wonder if someone could uh, briefly describe the transposition exercise part of the flight, uh, how you're going to turn it around, and how far away you'll go from the slaw and so forth. Well. We'll separate and uh, with a velocity of about two to three feet per second in that order and go out for about 70 seconds before we make our turnaround. And then we'll take uh, part of that out and then come back along, hoping possibly to come back alongside so we can get some uh, pictures of the deployment of the slaw and um, station keep for a short while. These, we haven't actually trained uh, for this maneuver yet. Uh, the trainer that we intend to use is the DCPS here at, at the center, and uh, we just haven't gotten around to using it yet. So all the uh, exact details haven't been worked out yet. We worked them out all out on paper, but we really haven't tried them and, and worked them out uh, so that we know that they'll work operationally yet. Does anyone else want to say anything about it? Did you try some this week, Wally? No, I didn't have a chance to, but I think uh, it would be said that, it, in essence, after the transposition that Gus intends to be in what amounts to a station-keeping mode, and this should not be a, a totally new adventure other than the fact it's a different control system. Well, well we, we don't intend to expend a, a great amount of fuel doing this. We, we want to get the pictures, but 
It's not our intent to stay there for a long period of time. We have a very tight fuel budget, and we don't intend to waste it there or use it there. They're probably they wouldn't. Ed, Ed would like to make another comment. I'd like to comment on on the thinking that is involved in what we're actually doing here. Is we're trying to do the first steps and follow exactly how we'll do it when we have the lem back there. But we won't have anything to dock with this time. But we're going to try to follow the same separation to stay in close to the. Uh, well, the lem, if it were there, and then do the pitch round maneuver and be in position so that if the lem were there, uh, we can have a feeling for the complexity of the problem of actually docking with the lem uh, on a later flight. In other words, we want to do the initial groundwork so that the next flight, all they have to do is do the actual uh, docking. At least we can come back with a qualitative evaluation for them of what the problem will be. There's another Real point hard. to make to possibly avoid confusion. The S-4B will be stable. It will not be tumbling as a booster normally might, so that it will not be a, a tracking exercises was attempted in Gemini 4 and Gemini 7 with a booster. This will be much like an Agena as it's stable, uh, in the sense of being stable. Yeah. Uh, that has just been named. You uh, named men uh, Givens, Swigert, and Evans, as I got it, and they're not on my list of astronauts. They aren't astronauts, are they? Who, who are they? Uh, well, I'll yeah. talk to you. It, yeah, these are part of the last group of 19, right. though. Oh, they are part right. of Well, they're not in this. I see. Right. Uh, Swigert, then, what is his, what's his first name? Jack, he's a civilian. Thank you. That's okay, right there. I'd like to direct this to uh, Roger. Uh, you've been working on the experiments, Roger, on the uh, mission so far. How many experiments are there, and which one would you say is the most important if you had to classify them? You know <laughs> Yeah, there's, um, let's see, I think we have four what we call S or scientific experiments now. Three medical experiments that require in-flight participation and uh, several others that are just pre-flight and post-flight, and then one technical experiment. By far the most important thing on this flight, though, is not the experiments. I think it's the mission objectives, as we call them, which by themselves are experiments, but the mission objectives are designed to test out specific components of hardware in the spacecraft and see how the systems operate. These will be handled the same way that experiments have been in the past. Uh, Flight-type maneuvers, tests, ECS tests that are scheduled at a certain time in the flight plan, just as if they were an experiment. Um, a quick rundown on the experiments. The 4S are all photographic. There's a dim light photography, a sodium vapor trail cloud photography experiment that's being done in conjunction with the uh, French government. A, uh, the standard S5 and S6 that have been on all the Gemini flights for geologic photos and weather photos. And then the, the medical, Ed has the best medical experiment on board. It's a, it's a girdle that he has to put on about four to five hours before reentry and uh, wear throughout the reentry and until recovery and back on the ship. It's, Ed can tell you about his pair of elastic trousers. He's real fond of them. And then we have the, what we call an otolith uh, experiment, which is me measuring disturbances, if there are any, to the inner ear. I think that's been done on Gemini 7 also. Mark Bloom. Well, first I'd like to hear from Ed White about the uh, 
the elastic trousers. And second, uh, Gus Grissom mentioned earlier that you hadn't done certain training in station keeping uh, with the S-4B. I'd like to know if, if the spacecraft uh, were ready now, would you gentlemen be ready to go up with it? Uh, I think I'd have to say uh, probably no right now. We've still got some more training that we want to do, would certainly like to do. Jules Bergman. Yeah, I knew Roger was going to bait you on that one, but uh, this is probably a pair of, uh, if you might qualify them, uh, into being called a pair of space tights. They're, uh, the space is pretty tight in them, as a matter of fact. But what they are, they're designed for uh, giving support to the legs and the lower abdomen area to keep the blood from pooling in this area. You know, we've tried to do the same thing on earlier experiments where we had a support garment that pulsed for certain intervals, and we really haven't had a great deal of success uh, with this technique. So on this flight, rather than wear the garments the whole duration of the flight, I have been elected uh, through what process, I'm not sure. But I've been elected to uh, wear them and put them on several hours before reentry, and they start down <coughs> at my ankles and go all the way up to my midsection, and it's a, uh, a rather standard clinical uh, device used in quite a few of the hospitals uh, for uh, people with uh, problems with uh, veins in their legs and where they need support in this area. And it's a rather simple device, and if it works, I suppose the medical uh, profession be, are looking for some solution to this pooling problem. So this is what it's for. Cool. Gus, where geographically, at what altitude, and in what daylight conditions, what lighting conditions, will you perform the uh, slaw separation and transposition? It will be uh, over the states during daylight. Dick Lewis, right back here. Uh, I'd like to ask this question of uh, the commanders of their respective crews, um, <clears throat> Gus and Wally. Uh, what would be the minimum flight time on this mission? Uh, to give you an idea of uh, that you had flown enough to uh, check out the, the basic and uh, the most important aspects of the mission. Oh, I, I think that's pretty difficult to answer. We like as much time as we can get, and any time we get, well, it'll certainly give us some information. I'm sure that after we get up over a day or so, why, why we will feel it that we have a great deal of information on the systems. Uh, some of the uh, thermal properties, of course, takes days to really come to equilibrium, and the longer we can keep it up, the better off we are. I, I don't think I would care to amplify that. Uh, it's typical of a long-duration flight. The more time you get, the more stability and equilibrium as far as thermal properties go, the utilization of consumables. These are the things we need to know about. I'd suspect after one day that we'd probably feel we'd succeeded in getting most of the mission accomplished. Well, would either of you say that, uh, say a three-orbit, uh, three-revolution uh, flight, would that be enough to give you a general idea, or would you think, it, would a day actually be the minimum? I think probably Joe Shea as a program manager is the guy that's going to have to decide what really <clears throat> makes it a successful mission. I don't think we're really capable of answering that one. You know, as far as we're concerned, it's a success if all three of us get back. <laughs> Sanders, come on. 
Uh, yesterday, Chris Kraft said that the hardest decision for him was going to be the sixth rev when he had to give a go or no go for the first day. I wonder how you all feel about this uh, hardest decision business. Do you go along with his thinking or do you have your own thoughts on it? Well, uh, after all, Chris is looking after our interests. And uh, if things aren't going well with the spacecraft uh, during the first six orbits, I, uh, I suspect that uh, we wouldn't be pushing him to, to go on to a, long, to a much longer flight when we, when we didn't have confidence in the spacecraft. And this is really what Chris is saying. He, before he goes past six, he, wanna, he wants to have confidence that the thing is working as advertised. And we feel the same way. I think what, what, what I meant was uh, a matter of this uh, poor landing areas, poor well, contingency reason, areas for 16 That's rounds. the reason for uh, making the decision after the 6th orbit, because after that, it's, uh, I think, the next good landing area is on the 17th orbit, which is almost a full day. Short I time. understand that the guidance and navigation system is one of the important things you want to check out this time. Can you tell me how hard or how easy it is to find a star in that small uh, field, and do you expect it to be difficult to see any of the stars during daylight? Well, Ed's our big navigator. I'll let him tell you about it. Well, actually, one of the big milestones, I think, will be when we get up there and uh, pop the covers off of the uh, sextant telescope and get an idea of exactly what we can or can't see through there. And if we have any coding or any problems with coding on our uh, optics, how hard it will be to acquire the star in the sextant if you, we can see them adequately in the telescope, and we are all capable of, of easy navigation, in other words, moving around with the stars up in the sky, so if we can see out through the telescope, I have full confidence that we can easily acquire and market in the sextant. And as far as the last question is concerned of uh, how well we can see stars in the daytime, uh, we've come back after 10 flights now and steadily maintain that we can't see stars in the daytime. We have one additional uh, aid on this flight, we have the capability with the guidance and navigation system to put it in optics, uh, auto optics positioning, which can automatically select a star, put it in the center of the telescope, and, and it should put it also in the center of the sextant. And the sextant has a uh, magnification factor in it which should permit us to uh, see the stars in the daytime. So we feel that if our optics isn't degraded, that we will be able to, at least through the auto optics positioning, put a star in the sextant and uh, mark it in the sextant in the daytime. Now, this doesn't give us a full capability that we would really like to have of being able to see the field of stars in the telescope in the daytime, which theoretically, if you didn't have problems due to uh, reflected light on your lenses and whatnot, you theoretically should be able to do this from space. But with the... Uh, problems or reflections and whatnot, uh, I don't believe we will without magnification. Ed, you might want to add to that that uh, in order for this auto optics to work, you just can't do this at random. This assumes that we have previously aligned the platform maybe six or seven hours before and we're doing a realignment because of drift. But if you're starting from scratch, you can't use this auto optics positioning. Yeah, we have to be able to see the stars. Uh, to make the initial alignment through the tele to, through the telescope. Jordy Powers. Walt Cunningham has been sitting there quietly, not saying a word, and looking rather hungry. Walt, uh, 
your compadre up on the far end of the program up here looks a little bit fatter than I remember him in the Mercury program, and you look kind of hungry. Uh, is there something going on here that, that we don't know about? There might be the difference in success here. See, whether you've got it or you're still trying to get it. <laughs> George Alexander. <laughs> George Alexander. Uh, there was a reference in one of the uh, earlier briefings uh, about uh, restraint uh, systems uh, used with your constant wear garment. Have you got some sort of a telephone lineman's belt for use when you're not in your couch and not in your suit? Let us say working at the GNN station? No. Uh, uh, we will have sandals on that have Velcro on them. We have Velcro along the floor and along the sides. and. Uh, that's all we expect to need. We have no other restraint. No, no belts. Art Hill. Uh, yesterday we got a rundown from uh, Joe Shea on some of the problems that have led up to the, de in the development cycle of the spacecraft, and I was wondering if any of the problems uh, have led to changes in the testing procedures that you'll follow in checking out these various systems like the ECS in orbit during the flight. Did you hear all the questions? Well, we were talking up there while you said that. Would you repeat it? Uh, problems like the ECS that have come up in the development of the spacecraft, uh, has, have any of these problems led to changes in your testing procedures that you will use to check out this various equipment while you're in flight? Um, I can't think of any write-off. Can, can you? The, um, in, in the environmental control system, the um, suit evaporator is probably the only one. We, we probably won't play around too much with the suit evaporator unless we need to use it. I think there's another answer to that, and that was that we had problems that were basically no-go problems. And when those are solved, that shouldn't change our testing procedures, merely testing the whole package as we intended to do all along. Yesterday we had a briefing on the uh, computer display panel, and it seemed to be quite a few numbers that had to be translated into words. Do you think the human engineers could have done you any better service on that? Hey, well, Don's been punching that thing lately. Let's let him talk about it a little <laughs> while. Well, it's uh, true you have to learn a language of numbers to operate that thing. I don't know of any way that you could human engineer it uh, appreciably to make it any more meaningful. You you have to use it. It's a strictly a checklist operation. You have to sit there and uh, know that certain combinations of uh, what are called verbs and nouns, which are actually two-digit numbers, but call them verbs and nouns, mean certain real words in English. And uh, uh, aside from perhaps rearranging a number so that you go from left to right and up to down rather than the other way around on the keyboard, that would be about the only thing I know of that would make it any simpler to operate. Words instead of numbers? Yes, sir. One more level of logic to uh, bring well, you back I to English. Well, I think that would, if, if you uh, tried to deal in actual words, you mean it in the sense of punching in letters of the alphabet rather than... Well, mainly for when it's talking to you. This seems to be the hard part. Oh, we have a limited oh boy, capacity. I don't think there's a capacity. Yeah, we have a limited capacity in, in the computer now, and... Uh, yeah, you, you, to, to get the same amount of uh, mathematics uh, into the same into a given volume and bulk, you'd have to, uh, well, I don't know how you would do it. We've, we've got a certain number of words, and we can do 
a large number of different programs with these. If you wanted to put things in actual word readouts, you'd have to have a tremendously increased uh, memory in the computer. If you have a 20,000 word vocabulary, I'd like to hear it. <laughs> Sue Butler. I'm not quite clear. I, all three of you are going to take off your pressure suits at the same time. I mean, or is one of you are going to have a pressure suit at all times. Uh, what no. is the sequence of when do you take them off? You know, this sort of thing. We, we plan to keep, uh, all three of us plan to keep our suits on until after we have completed the first burn, and then we'll take them all take them off, all three at the same time, and we'll leave them off until just prior to re-entry. This is our plan. Chilsburg. Gus, looking back to those uh, prehistoric pre-launch delays in Mercury and then the pre-launch delays in Gemini, and in terms of how, how much more complex a spacecraft Apollo is, do you expect there are going to be a goodly number of slips and pre-launch delays before you do get off? Well, uh, I think we've had them. Uh, the, the spacecraft systems uh, all look pretty good to us now. We've, we've, they've been through uh, a checkout at, at North American and have gone through an initial series down at, at the Cape. And as soon as we get it out of the altitude chamber, I think that a good portion of our problems are over. Stacked at the pad, finally, do you expect a lot of problems then or a few? Well, we've had them in the past. Mark, please. I'd almost be willing to say that we've gone to some more trouble, though. We've simulated the stack a little bit more than we had in the past. Uh, maybe you've seen some of the stack that's been down there lately for the lunar stack, so that we're not just arriving there with equipment. We've been there before. Should help it quite a bit. For Gus Grissom and Wally Shira. Both of you have uh, had training and now will be going up in um, Mercury's, Gemini's, and Apollo's. I wonder if you could compare the difference in training and what you think the, uh, the difference in, in complication in flying them will be. Well, when we started training for Mercury, we didn't know what to train for, and so we did everything. It's the way we ran, ran around the country and the things we did were, uh, well, a lot of them just had no benefit. And the training for Apollo has been pretty straightforward, I think. We know what we need to know. We, we, know, we know that we have to learn the, about the spacecraft, how to operate it, and uh, get our flight plan and our mission rules squared away. That's really about all we have to do. Uh, back early in Mercury, why we, we were worried about where a man could live and survive, and so we did a lot of things like spinning around in three-axis machines that uh, we don't really feel you need anymore. Apollo is easier than, than it was for you training in Mercury, which is a new program? No, I won't say it's any easier, because it is a very complex vehicle. I, can, I might add to that. I can recall very vividly I had three pull-out slides that had my total flight plan and checklist, and the slide was about this wide and about eight inches long. And each side of this three-tab device had one orbit, which represented six orbits. When we start out with a checklist that's about that thick, uh, typewritten, with countless items on it that must first either be put to memory or second to a lot of exhaustive practice, I think you can see the relative order of complexity. The Apollo spacecraft is much, much more complex than Gemini and Mercury put together. 
In fact, that would add up to three seats, but that's about the only analogy I could use for you. That's well, an abbreviated checklist, too. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> hey, well, I, I, Wally, uh, I, I can top your story on, on the checklist because my, my first flight was on a 3x5 card and it was pasted on the instrument panel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dick Lewis? Uh, I think uh, Wally uh, indicated a while ago that the uh, S4B would be stable. Uh, I'm wondering why. And uh, what happens if it's not stable, if it starts to yard, tumble? I guess I started that one. I'll go ahead and run with it. The S4B, of course, is to be used ultimately to uh, burn into translunar trajectory. So it actually has its own stable element that we call the inertial unit, the IU by abbreviation. And it is programmed prior to the liftoff to function as we predict it should function. For example, at point of separation, that is a, a fixed point in time during a so-called normal flight plan and it should remain in that position until called to do something else subsequent to separation. Does it have attitude controls on it? Yes, it does. Back over here. Uh, you'll be, will you be in the capacity of a passenger in the early moments of the flight, or do you have actual duties while you're starting? No, let me answer that for Roger. Uh, there are no passengers on board, and uh, all three of us have our duties uh, during launch and reentry. And Roger has all, uh, most of the systems, uh, instruments in front of him. He also has the responsibility of, of the checklist and reading the checklist and seeing that Ed and I uh, forget nothing on both a normal launch or an abort or anything that should occur. So all three of us are busy during almost all the periods of flight. I think you might amplify that a little too. The, uh, he's busier than a one-armed fiddler over there sometimes during our simulations because they can throw there's a lot of failures that can occur, and there's a lot of failures that can occur over there that he can correct, such as a failure in the, one of the AC buses or fuel cells or one of the main buses. Uh, the electrical system is fairly complex, and the controls for both correcting uh, failures and monitoring it are all over on his side. So the system's monitoring is primarily all done on the right side. For Isley and Cunningham, if I may, uh, has the changeover from 205 to 204 generated any training problems for you in catching up to this complicated flight plan that we've been talking of? And what will you three be doing on launch day? I'll start and then we'll bounce down the line then. Uh, first off, 205 was quite similar to 204, and as we saw the schedule changing, 205 <coughs> became almost identical to 204. The spacecraft were almost mirror images. The only difference in our preparation and the 204 prime crew's preparation at that point in time was about six weeks to two months. We're trying to narrow that gap as we progress as backups. Now the period of time at the Cape would be the same role as backups where we would be prepared up to a certain point of time to take the mission either individually or as a crew. And then finally we would be preparing the spacecraft and would ultimately have to have an operational decision on when we could make the mission if that were required. Uh, well, I think our job uh, really is two parts. One is to prepare ourselves to fly this mission in case we're called upon. The other part is to support the uh, prime crew in whatever uh, they need. Uh, as far as our learning to fly it in this short of time, we have been scrambling quite a bit lately trying to get caught up on a lot of simulator time mainly that we need in order to get up to speed on the guidance system and other systems. Uh, as far as our support role, I think that the work we did on 205 prepared us very well to slide into that very easily because of the uh, uh, 
similarity between the two vehicles. I could only uh, reiterate that the problems associated with suddenly being dropped on 204 are those associated with having overnight about 10 weeks to make up, eight weeks to make up. And uh, it isn't uh, all necessarily a disadvantage when you stop and figure that uh, there would also have been a lot of lost motion maybe in our training over those 10 weeks, and we've suddenly lost all that lost motion too. And you have new direction made at your efforts. It's pretty well laid out what you have to do. I think it's also a fairly safe assumption that uh, uh, by launch day, uh, we might not necessarily have made up a full eight or ten weeks, but uh, we will have uh, done our best to be at that point as well prepared as we could. Louis Alexander. On the last 14-day flight, Borman and Lovell brought along some reading material. Do you folks have any plans to bring along some reading? Checklist. 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 <laughs> <laughs> That's a 200-page book all by itself. And all the, you, you might compare the missions by starting to stack up the, the volumes of data that are required. We have not only those volumes, but we have the logging volumes, the flight plan, and the, uh, uh, the targets that we'll use to, uh, for our Apollo landmarks. We have our, uh, well, it actually progressed the same way in, in Gemini as we started through, eventually as the flights got longer and more complex, the uh, amount of material that you carried on board increase. So I, yeah. I think we'll have quite a bit to read. It's gotten to the point we need a librarian instead of an engineer. <laughs> Cross index. Well, how do you plan to relax then when those things get kind of tense? <laughs> I don't think I can answer that one. John Gabar. If your systems monitoring is over at Roger's position, why then was this man chosen to be the specialist in the Lunar excursion module. Uh, maybe I ought to answer that one. Uh, we're talking about two entirely <coughs> different missions. And in the case of the Block One, we don't have a lunar excursion module. So you work out your timelines to match the crew that's on board. Looking at the uh, lunar operation, where you do have to worry about a limb and the complexity involved, as I think I indicated, uh, we just didn't feel it was possible for one man to learn the detailed systems of both vehicles, and we had to make a choice. And our choice was to select him to be the expert on the LEM systems. But your control, your control <coughs> panel would remain the same, so the same instrumentation will be on block two. That's correct. That's correct. And, and the gent in the right seat will have to have enough knowledge of the systems to know that something is not nominal. Something that needs correction. He does not have to understand how do you fix it. He'll depend upon the expert, the command module pilot, to tell him that. These are normally not time critical things that happen. <clears throat> and remember, just just because uh, you're in the right seat for launch doesn't mean that's where you stay the whole flight. A launch only lasts 10 minutes, and from then on, uh, that's the right seat is really sort of the watch station of the spacecraft because that's where the. Uh, good portion of the uh, system instruments are, and so whoever happens to be on watch will be in that seat at that time. I'd like to go back to Roy Neal's question concerning the function of the backup crew. I believe, Wally, you said that you are prepared to back up the prime crew individually or as a backup crew. Do I understand that there's any possible change 
in uh, uh, policy that now we would be prepared to exchange individual crew members rather than swap entire crews if one or the other set of crews is incapacitated? No, I said that. I said what you said, but I added to that this would be an operational decision depending on the conditions at the time. Uh, well, I think we've never had a position that says you would change no. whole crews. We've always maintained an operational flexibility to go either way, and you'd make that decision when you determine what's happened to you and where you are in a mission. I think it's not fair to take the precedent. Obviously, in Mercury, you can only replace one man. In Germany, you had to replace either two or one man, and we're matriculating with three men now, so it, you, you have to give us an out on that one. Uh, there could be quite a hubbub and voice communications. Would you elect a spokesman or something up there? Everybody talking at once. There's, there's a command pilot, and so he, he does, you don't do any electing. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I think both Gus and I have had the same voting arrangement. We each have individually three votes, and our compatriots have one each. <laughs> Very democratic. <laughs> it was either Deke or one of you gents along the line a little while ago talked about the centrifuge, and your comment was not too bad. Uh, could you give us some order of G on, on what your G profile is and what you've ridden on a centrifuge and have all six people ridden these profiles? Go ahead, Gus. Uh, I don't know if all six have ridden a centrifuge or not. <laughs> I assume so. Uh, we have uh, ridden the uh, uh, Apollo Gemini pro or Apollo profile uh, back when I wrote it was back quite some time ago, and the uh, G profile for the Earth orbits was actually pretty low on launch. Uh, we get up to about four and a half Gs, five Gs on the uh, S1B, and, and about a maximum of two on the S4. Uh, Reentry uh, can be anything from uh, about two Gs up to about 10 or 12, depending on uh, how the burn goes and where the target is and what the lift vector turns out to be. and and how we're guiding in. I think we have some abort profiles, uh, Shorty, that do go to 15G to answer your question. Well, Gus, you're an experienced uh, airplane driver. Uh, you're talking about 12G on reentry, and we're also talking about a situation in which you're supposed to be able to accept commands and say, bank this angle, bank that angle, so on. Uh, well, I think you saw us run enough up at Johnsville to know that at the angle that we're taking the G's through the body, and you could take a high G load, you can take 10 or 12 G's and still, take 10 G's and see pretty well, and 12 G's you're starting to get in maybe a gray area, but you can still respond to, to commands and guide the vehicle. Yeah, I found at 15 G's I couldn't see the lettering on the panel anymore because of the eyeball distortion, and, but as far as being able to manipulate a, a hand controller, uh, I don't think you'd have too much trouble doing that even at 15. It's pretty uncomfortable and it hurts a little, but uh, you can get through it for a short period. Howard Benedict. Uh, I'd like to ask Wally, uh, what was the reasoning uh, behind not keeping your crew on the uh, 205 flight when it was changed to a rendezvous with 208? And just how disappointed were you when you heard the news? Well, I can answer the last part. The first part I had nothing to do with. <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe Deke could answer it. I could, but I'm not at liberty to discuss it. 
One, two. <laughs> One, you removed. Disappointed, yes. I think uh, any crew and uh, any one of us would be disappointed when we have that lessened opportunity for a flight and we have yet to have a case of where one of us would want to say we don't want a flight. Now, if we say that we're not ready for a flight, that's something else. That usually means that we would like to have more training. But to uh, relinquish three seats from our astronaut team for manned space flight is naturally a disappointment to all of us. And of course, particularly to the three of us who anticipate having a flight. But I think the decision that was made to remove the 205 mission as originally conceived was one that we concurred in. Go ahead, Jay. Uh, Dick, I wanted to follow up on Sue's question a moment ago on your philosophy here where you have uh, three members and a backup team. You have no ironclad policy if one of the primary crew uh, members uh, comes sick or something that you would replace them replace a prime crew with the backup crew totally or if you would run uh, one person in. Is that correct? That's correct. We do not. The time we did it in Gemini was with nine and we lost both prime crew members so it was an obvious choice there. We had to replace it with a full crew. Mm -hmm. well, if we'd lost one we'd have to make an operational decision at that point as to which was the best way to go. Well, Could you elaborate on your thinking uh, of using a team, the team effort? I, I, I speak in the sense of one crew gets used to working and training and doing things a certain way. And, and, and if you lose one and you have to shove a member from the backup team in there, don't you have sort of a cog that doesn't quite fit after nine months of training? It's possible. That's why I say it's a function of when you have to make this kind of a decision. So if you got down the line, say, two weeks before launch and something happened to the primary crew, then you're thinking, not trying to pin you down, but would be leaning probably toward replacing the whole crew, would it not? Probably. So what follows next in the recording is a gag reel about a mythical mission called Gemini 13 that had flown without the press's knowledge. Um, I haven't been able to find any reference to the gag reel out there on the big bad internet, so its contents may be lost to us forever, except um, for those that saw it and that might have been attending the press conference. The audio track to the gag reel was put on the, uh, the NASA uh, event, but um, it was put to the old Batman television series, and you can actually hear it in, in the audio. But um, that's the only thing that kind of remains from it, except also the, the laughter of everybody in the room. Uh, if anybody has any insight into it, I'd sure love to hear about it. So while I was sitting there listening to this, I kept hearing in my mind the words of those who had been deeply connected to the Apollo program that said with deep irony that if it were not for the Apollo 1 fire and the fact that we were given this harsh dose of medicine by fate, the United States may never have been able to get to the moon. The fire had put the brakes on the program, but it also gave engineers and managers who were nursing their wounds from uh, the event that had occurred an opportunity to really, really step back and examine what was really happening with the Apollo spacecraft and its hardware and to remedy all of it. Because of the sacrifice made by Grissom, White, and Chaffee, it gave the missions that followed a fighting chance at, at extreme success. 
I also kept thinking about a small piece by a political artist named Wayne Stasekel, and I apologize if I'm kind of mauling that last name. Um, on He was both uh, a member of the staff at the Tampa, Tampa Bay Tribune and the Chicago Tribune, and unfortunately we just lost him this past year on November 20th, 2018. The artist's work depicted a space-suited Neil Armstrong planting the flag on the lunar surface. Off in the distance, the lunar module Eagle. And behind Neil Armstrong are three ghostly-clad space-suited figures with the name Grissom, White, and Chaffee just inscribed on their life support systems backpacks. All three of the figures are helping him raise the flag and raise the stars and stripes on the on the surface of the moon. I kind of think that sort of says it all. On our next installment, a special interview with someone who had a very interesting perspective on another tragic day in spaceflight history. For Sawyer Rosenstein, Mark Ratterman, and Kat Robeson, this is Gene McCulkus saying thanks for listening to this very special edition of Talking Space. Mm-hmm.